Greetings and welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and originators. I am your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin, and today on our debut episode, we are digging into the shadows, into the background that made one of the best true crime books, as well as a pioneer within the genre of new journalism possible. Today we're talking about Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Touted as one of the best and one of the first true crime novels, In Cold Blood details the horrific murders of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas in 1959. Upon having learned of the quadruple murder before the killers were even caught, Truman Capote took it upon himself to travel to Holcomb and follow the story. This is what would later be known as new journalism. Along with his friend and fellow Arthur, Harper Lee, who would find her own fame in 1960 with her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel To Kill a Mockingbird, they interviewed neighbors, police, and locals. The killers, Richard Hickok and Perry Smith, were arrested six weeks after the murders, and Truman Capote was given the opportunity to interview them extensively up to their execution, something that would change literature as much as it would change Capote himself. In Cold Blood is referred to as the book that made Capote's name, and not without reason. Capote makes the characters and stories and locations come alive, and his prose pulls you in like any great true crime documentary does nowadays, which is all the more remarkable of an achievement when one considers that the book was published in 1966. Quote, Either one has style or one doesn't. But style is oneself. It's something that you cannot learn. It has to come from within you and bit by bit be arrived. And it's simply there like the color of your eyes or your hair. Anything that is absolutely natural to yourself. After having published Breakfast at Tiffany's, a short novel and three stories in 1958, and achieved success, Capote had what he referred to as his turning point. Norman Mailer had called Capote the most perfect author of my generation, which I think must have put some pressure on him to live up to the bar he had set. Nevertheless, Capote always did expect more of himself than anyone else could have, and he decided on challenging himself further on his next novel. In an interview in 1964, Capote expressed that he was still fine-tuning his prose and was not yet where he wanted to be. He thought that his new book, referring to In Cold Blood, was as close to his desired style as he had yet come. Capote was 40 years old at the time. He had been working on the book four years already and was beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel, though it would still be close to two years before it would be finished. Flamboyant, different, odd, eccentric, somewhat unpredictable, and with his trademark high-pitched voice and southern drawl, he was unlike anything the residents of Holcomb had experienced before. But Capote was unafraid. He was used to being different and took pride in who he was, though it had been quite a journey getting there. Truman was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, as Truman struck for persons on September 30, 1924 
though he would grow up in Monroeville, Alabama. Monroeville would be home to his early formative years, but also the place of his first introduction to alienation, as he would feel very much out of place there. As a lonely child, being neglected by the majority of his peers as well as his parents, who would often leave him in the care of others, but highly intelligent, he taught himself to read and write before he entered his first year of high school. He would later often be observed walking around town or his neighborhood with a pen and pad, always ready to scribble down something if the inspiration should hit. He began writing fiction at age eight, writing short stories. At around age eleven, he began taking the craft more seriously. Truly immersing himself, he would write for three hours every day without fail. When other children would go home and practice the violin or piano, Truman would treat his writing with the same discipline, intensity, and dedication. He had truly found somewhere he belonged, somewhere he didn't feel alone, and would do his best to remain there for the rest of his life. Monroeville is where Capote befriended future writer Nell Harper Lee, later known as Harper Lee. They were the complete opposites, Truman being a sensitive boy who was picked on by other children for being a wimp, and Harper being a rough and tough tomboy. Despite this, or maybe because of it, they became great friends, a friendship that would particularly be appreciated during the long, often lonely days researching and writing in cold blood. But things would become more tumultuous before they would stabilize. Truman struggled with feelings of abandonment as he saw little of his parents growing up, something that most assuredly left deep psychological scars that would influence decisions later in life. His father was a scam artist and was therefore often in and out of trouble with the law. After a while, his mother Lily May became sick of his antics and divorced him. Soon thereafter, she left Truman and moved to New York, where she would meet her future husband, Jose Garcia Capote, and began going by the name Nina. Truman would be reunited with his mother when he was 12 years old and was allowed to live with her and her new husband in New York, but it was far from the reunion he had hoped for. Lily May had a very extreme personality and was very much an either-or person. She would either be very kind towards Truman or severely cruel which made it impossible for him to predict what he could expect from her. When she was cruel, she would pick on him for being effeminate and not being like other boys, something that again strengthened his feeling of alienation. The fact that she was a heavy drinker didn't help much on her mood swings either. Though Lily May was unpredictable, his stepfather was the stable figure at home. Truman would be adopted by him and take his last name and would thus become Truman Garcia Capote. Quote, It's a very excruciating life facing that blank piece of paper every day and having to reach up somewhere into the clouds and bring something down out of them. End quote. Capote was a mediocre student. He did well in the courses that interested him and completely disregarded those that did not catch his interest. He did, however, have the gift of storytelling and would entertain others, making him quite popular in his circle of friends. Unfortunately, 
Most of his peers were not in his circle of friends, and many would pick on him. At the peak of his puberty, he attained a group of friends who would often come to his house to smoke, drink, and dance in his room. They would also venture out into the clubs of New York City, where they would try to scheme their way into the clubs, including popular spots such as the Stork Club and Cafe Society. His mother had been a heavy drinker for much of her life, and as Capote came into his mid to late teenage years, her drinking continued to escalate, which made his home life even more unstable. Ultimately, he didn't do very well at school and had to repeat the 12th grade. That would be the last of his formal education as he became ever more fixed on his path to become a famous author. And with his talent and determination, it wouldn't take long before he had his first novel published, though that wouldn't be a breeze either. He turned down the option of college in order to work for the magazine The New Yorker instead, which was the place to be for an aspiring writer in the 1940s. He was hired as a copy boy, but it would only take two years before he lost his job, this after having angered famous poet Robert Frost. During this time, Capote had tried to get his stories published at the magazine without success, and after being let go, he decided to pursue writing full-time. He would begin working on the novel Summer Crossing, a novel that would be shelved in order to focus on another idea he had at the time, a novel entitled Other Voices, other rooms. Other Voices, Other Rooms, written when Capote was 22 and 23 years old, was published in 1948. It would be his first published novel after a series of short stories. Though it sold well, it was met with mixed reviews, especially considering it was from a first-time author. Little did anyone know how much more Truman Capote had in store. By 1954, as Truman was experiencing moderate success as a writer, but was still far from the potential he would later reach, his mother's struggles with alcoholism was nearing its worst stage. That same year, she would commit suicide by taking a lethal dose of drugs, something that naturally had a strong impact on 30-year-old Truman. Before he read the 300-word article that would inspire his 94,000-word book, he had unsuccessfully worked on a couple of ideas. He had, in fact, done a great amount of work on these prior projects before, but for whatever reasons, he had run dry. In the New York Times, he read, Kansas farmer slain, family of four slain in Kansas and that simply struck something in him that he could not let go. The New Yorker, the magazine he had been fired from several years earlier, agreed to pay him to go to Holcomb, Kansas, and write an article about the case. He decided to bring Harper Lee in order to help him gain the confidence of the locals. Capote soon became fascinated by the idea, the aesthetic, of combining journalism with fictional technique. According to him, when he began writing in cold blood, it wasn't because he was interested in the crime, but because it happened to accommodate his aesthetic theory that he could produce a work of art, an engaging book, like one of fiction, but using a real-life situation as the subject. The theory was that the merging of real-life events told in a fictional style 
would have the same or an even bigger impact than most fictional literature had. He would travel back and forth between Kansas and New York with Harper Lee. In Kansas, he would do the research which involved a lot of socializing before returning to New York to write. To begin with, in 1960 it was to be an article, but as the story evolved, Truman realized that he had much more than an article in front of him. And Cold Blood would have to be a book if he wanted to tell it the way he felt it deserved to be told. Capote would later tell that despite making many friends, as he had to in order to write a book in the style he had decided upon, it was a very lonely existence, and overall a very difficult book to write. Nevertheless, he persevered as he knew that he had something very special and promising coming together. He had had a love affair with alcohol for many years already, but he had not yet gone so far down the road that it was too late for a turnaround. This, though, would be a very different matter by the end of the book. The two main subjects of his book, Richard Hickok and Perry Smith, were very different individuals. Richard, most often referred to as Dick, was easy to talk to, Capote said. Dick was like a person you'd meet on a train who would just start up a conversation and start telling you his whole life story immediately. Perry, however, was different. In Capote's own words, Perry was a strange and difficult boy. Despite this, Capote felt that of the two accused men, he got closer to Perry precisely because he was so difficult to get close to, which meant that, once he broke through the barrier, their interactions became more intimate as time went on. Another factor they connected on was Perry's feelings of loneliness, something Capote was well acquainted with since childhood and also with his lonely existence in Kansas at the time. Quote, That's the difference between the serious artist and the craftsman. The craftsman can take material and because of his abilities do a professional job of it. The serious artist, like a Proust, is like an object caught by a wave and swept to shore. He's obsessed by his material. It's like a venom working in his blood and the art is the antidote. Concerning his writing routine, Capote believed that drinking and smoking was a defining factor to his writing. He would say, I've got to be puffing and sipping. Then again, he also claimed that he wrote mostly while drinking coffee, and as the afternoon wore on, he would shift from coffee to mint tea, then to sherry and martinis, and finally to scotch, in particular his favorite brand, J&B, into the evening and night. He made a special point of not calling his scotch of preference J&B, but using its full name, Justerini and Brooks. He was also known to bring his own bottle to all and any social events, of which there would be many more to attend as In Cold Blood introduced him to a larger audience. Another factor in his routine is that he did all his initial writing in longhand. When he felt himself ready to proceed with a more complete draft, he would move over to the typewriter and do his own typing. He called the book a non-fiction novel, saying, The non-fiction novel being the genre brought about the synthesis of journalism and fictional technique, the end result being this new book of mine, In Cold Blood. 
Capote worked on the book for a total of six years and wouldn't finish it until after the execution of Smith and Hickok. When he did finish the book, having produced an astounding 8,000 pages of notes of research along the way, he was, however, proud of what he had achieved and felt it was as close to the goal he had set out for himself. It was first released as a four-part serial in The New Yorker, beginning with the September 25, 1965 issue. As is well known, the story was a huge success, even selling out in certain parts of the country, particularly in Kansas. It was first published as a book by Random House on January 17, 1966. However, the copyright states 1965 for those of you attentive to details. It was generally praised, but that did not come without its critics. Most of the critique focused on how Capote claimed and insisted that every word of the book was true, which is something he should not have done, as it left him vulnerable to critics. Some of these critics argued that Capote had changed facts to suit the narrative, had added scenes that never took place, and even manufactured dialogue. Some of the residents from Kansas claimed that they or their relatives were mischaracterized or misquoted. Some of this would appear in an article in Esquire in 1966. Among other discrepancies, lead investigator Alvin Dewey would later explain that the scene in the book where he visits the grave of the Clutter family was completely Capote's invention. It is now generally agreed that Capote took certain artistic liberties, which could mean that In Cold Blood is the first gonzo journalistic book, but that's a debate for another day. Despite the critique, it appeared, from one angle at least, like Capote was on top of the world. With some of the royalty money earned from the book, Capote bought an apartment on the 22nd floor of the UN Plaza. It had a panoramic view of Manhattan and was the place to live in New York City. Though Capote was now very wealthy and could afford a more comfortable lifestyle, he was experiencing a different side of success as well. He felt allured by the celebrity life and constant demands for interviews and TV appearances. As he frequented more parties and became more and more famous, he began writing less and drinking more, something that would grow into a dependency. There are, of course, several factors that can be attributed to Capote's alcoholism and later decline into drug abuse and alcohol dependency. But one factor is likely the closeness he established with Dick Hickok and Perry Smith. Over the course of five years, Capote became well acquainted with both murderers and would create relationships with them whether he desired to or not. They would send letters back and forth. He would visit them in prison and they would talk for hours at a time, something that makes it practically impossible not to form a bond. Capote also must have felt conflicted by the fact that he at some level hoped for the execution of the two men as it would serve as a more shocking ending to his book and maybe the ending his readers were hoping for, but at the same time didn't want his friends to be put to death. There was a period of time where Truman took distance from Hickok and Smith and wouldn't even respond to the letters Smith continued to send him. In spite of this, Perry Smith left Capote all his belongings, writing, Have belongings for you, in his final letter to Capote. They would be waiting for him when he returned to Kansas. The letter was written three or four hours before his execution. 
When they were put to death by the state of Kansas, Truman was there. Though present at the execution, Capote told that part of the story through the eyes of Alvin Dewey, the lead investigator, possibly in an attempt to separate himself from the final event. On the drive from the prison, after having witnessed the execution where Perry hung for more than 10 minutes before he was declared dead, Capote found himself forced to pull his car over. There, on the side of the road, he wept for approximately two hours. Later, looking and reading through some of the letters from Perry Smith in the documentary A Visit with Truman Capote from 1966, it is easy to see that the events had impacted Capote greatly. The research and subsequent book took a great toll on him, and it would be the beginning of his downward spiral. In Cold Blood was Capote's greatest commercial and financial success, but also, unfortunately, the last book he would ever finish. By the time 1975 rolled around, Capote had been drinking and doing drugs for many years, and he made his life even more difficult when he decided to release passages from a novel he had been working on. The pages were based on gossip and shocking true-life tales about the secrets and foibles of his wealthy socialite friends. Maybe he hoped to make an even bigger splash than in cold blood by writing an even more shocking and preposterous story, but in attempting this, he lost much more than he could have hoped for. He was immediately ostracized by all except a very small group of friends, and his drinking and drug use continued to accelerate. In 1984, Truman Capote, one of the greatest authors of his generation, died of liver cancer and other conditions associated with drug and alcohol abuse a month before his 60th birthday. In Cold Blood is still revered as one of the finest examples of true crime in written form. Even after what is soon to be 55 years since it was first published, it is still being read by fresh eyes and it still feels relevant in the way of its prose and subject. It has been criticized for enticing its reader along with the promise of detailed gore. And though that may be true, that shouldn't necessarily be seen as something negative. The darker sides of mankind have allured and fascinated and disgusted us in near equal measures for as long as literature and tales have been written and told. And Cold Blood was an obvious step into the future of true crime and journalistic writing and is therefore considered to be one of the greatest contributions to literature that Capote ever achieved. I'll leave you with one last quote from the man himself. All human life has its seasons and cycles, and no one's personal chaos can be permanent. Winter, after all, gives way to spring and summer, though sometimes when branches stay dark and the earth cracks with ice, one thinks they will never come, that spring and that summer, but they do, and always. Thank you for listening to House of Words. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Until next time, keep turning those pages.
House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason M. Moorharden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nimor Harden. <laughs>